0: It's Showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, Show. It's nice to be back. I know, again, I I just have to stop promising dates, I guess, is the... The real lesson, I suppose, I have uh, once again missed the deadline by um, almost a month, and uh, the truth is, it's just uh, incredibly busy at work. Because, and you, you know what? You'd think it wouldn't be busy at work because of no sports, right? I work at a radio station, I host, but considering you know all the things that are going on in the world with the with the coronavirus and current events, both in the United States and here in Canada, I just. You know, I, I definitely put it off for a couple of weeks. It didn't feel right to be posting podcast content about movies that were, weren't really happening in the first place. And then and then I admit I got sidetracked with being a procrastinator after that. But I ho- hopefully we'll be back to, to normal here. Actually, for the first time in what feels like ages, we actually have some some actual movies to talk about. I got around to watching some new releases over the last month. And now that we are nearing the end of June... It seems like we can actually focus on some actual movie reviews. We'll talk about the best drama ever bracket. You know, there's some other uh, some other movie changes. The Oscars have a new date. There's a lot of stuff to get into. So um, why don't we get right into it? We'll talk a little bit about movies. You can leave comments also wherever you like, uh, on, on iTunes or Google Play. You can get in touch with me via email, Twitter, what have you. Uh, We've had some interesting conversations on Twitter, uh, specifically about the Best Drama Ever bracket, which, by the way, is just two more matchups away from the Elite Eight. And actually, since we're talking about the Best Drama Ever bracket, I wanted to start there, because if you recall, if you guys recall in the last episode, uh, the whole Best Drama Ever bracket, for those who are unaware or forget... It was a it was a project I kind of conceived as a way to pass time during these times where no movies are being released in theaters. And now I know, in, in, at least in Canada, I think uh, now that we're approaching phase two or phase three or whatever it is of the province reopening here in Ontario specifically, uh, Cineplex theaters will be reopening in a very limited capacity, right? Like social distancing, all that kind of thing. I don't really th- know if I'll feel comfortable going to a, a movie theater where there's recycled air and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think for me, uh, the live theater movie going experience is going to take a hit uh, for the for the foreseeable future, as I'm sure it is for many of you. Because who wants to sit in one of those rooms with recycled air? Like God knows, I love going to the movies. I love going to the theater. But at the same time, it's just I don't know if I really want to sit in the movie theater with other people who I don't know. We can't really control a lot of stuff out of your control in a movie theater, right? But for that for that reason, because I anticipated that, hence the best drama ever bracket contest, right? So of course you can follow along at Showtime Movies, S H O Time Movies on Twitter. And uh, again, yeah, sixteen seeds in each of four conferences, so sixty-four seeds, like in a real March Madness tournament. We skip the play-in games because uh, that's just too complicated to figure, figure out for each for each uh, for each region, I guess, conference region, whatever you want to call them. And so again, our four regions are the pre-1969 region. 1970 to 1989 region, the 1990 to 2009 region and the 2010 to present region. And I guess those so those ones were were pretty easy to delineate because I feel like the pre-1969 movies are, are all pretty popular. And um, like I said, we're we're just two matchups away from getting into the elite 8. And uh, well, so we, we don't why don't we start with the sweet 16? Um, so from pre-1969, the two matchups, because of course there are two matchups remaining in each of the four regions, and the winners, again, that's how you get the Elite Eight, right? So the uh, f- the two matchups from the Sweet 16, the number one seed, Citizen Kane, had taken on the uh, five-seeded Lawrence of Arabia, the uh, three-seeded... 12 Angry Men had taken on the seven seeded Gone with the Wind. So, those are the two matchups in the pre 1969 tournament. Not a lot of votes for the pre 1969 tournament, I should add as well, because I-, I think probably a lot of people who listen to the podcast, not everyone certainly, I know some of my friends certainly have, but I think a lot of people who listen probably have not watched most, if not any, of the matchups, or pardon me, of the movies in the pre 1969 uh, region, right? So, uh, I'll just go ahead and say the. Uh, That region is actually set. We have the uh, two matchups in the Elite Eight. Uh, Citizen Kane, number one seeded Citizen Kane, is going to take on the three seed 12 Angry Men. And uh, I think that's probably, that makes sense, I think. I don't think this uh, entire part of the bracket, this entire conference, region, whatever you want to call it, I don't think there were really any upsets. Actually, you know what, I think the only upset perhaps was the uh, Gone with the Wind, the, the seventh seed again, taking out the second seed, Casablanca. I, I honestly thought Casablanca and Citizen Kane would be duking it out at the end. But Gone with the Wind, I guess uh, more more people love it than I gave it credit for. And I suppose with all that HBO Max controversy about Gone with the Wind these days, where they removed it because it has to do with the Confederate flag and the Confederacy and a love story during that time and, and era of the world. And they I think they actually put it back on recently on HBO Max, but with a disclaimer. So if you're watching, I don't have HBO Max, so you can't get that in Canada, but if, you, if you've watched Gone with the Wind, let me know what it looks like in America or, or anywhere else in the world, because like I said, you can't get that here uh, north of the border. But yes, the uh, two movies in the Elite Eight from the pre-1969 bracket will be Citizen Kane and 12 Angry Men. Uh, in 1970 to 1989 bracket, uh, part of the bracket, that... Uh, that elite eight matchup from the Sweet 16 has been set as well, and uh, not a, not a surprise here. So Godfather two, which is the, not just the number one seed in that conference, but also the number one overall seed in the entire tournament, I felt. So Godfather two moved on with a pretty convincing win over the five seeded Amadeus, which got pretty far. Amadeus took out Chinatown and Taxi Driver in the uh, in the first two rounds to get to the Sweet 16, but alas. Uh, pro- I mean, my prediction is that Godfather 2 will probably win the whole thing because it's so so damn famous, right? But at the same time, you never know. Even so, Godfather 2, moving on to the Elite Eight, where it will actually take on the two-seed, The Godfather. The Godfather One, I, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. And uh, The Godfather actually took out the six-seeded Apocalypse Now uh, on its way to the Elite Eight spot. And it's really interesting because if you think about those four movies, The Godfather 2... Amadeus, Apocalypse Now, and The Godfather. Francis Ford Coppola directed three of those four movies, amazingly. So that guy got a lot of a lot of heavy representation, let's say, in the 1970 to 1989 bracket. But yes, yeah, so an all-Godfather matchup for the Elite Eight, as we'll be having in, a, in a, probably a couple of days. And uh, let's see, 1990 to 2009, so now this region and the following region, the 2010 to present region, are not all good to go yet, because like I said, we still have two matchups, one from each, okay? So the matchup that is done is that uh, Schindler's List, the number two seed, took out the three-seeded Goodfellas. Very tight. A lot of the matchups in this uh, bracket were very highly contested. Goodfellas beat Forrest Gump. um, And before that, beat uh, LA Confidential, whereas Schindler's List very narrowly beat Pulp Fiction and Million Dollar... Actually, crushed Million Dollar, (laughs) maybe in the first round, let's be honest. But a very narrow win over uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fictions. But uh, uh, Schindler's List is moving on to the Elite Eight, where it will take on the winner... Of the number one seeded Saving Private Ryan versus the four seeded Shawshank Redemption, which I anticipate being another very narrow win. Because as much as I love Saving Private Ryan, and I'm sure a lot of people love Saving Private Ryan, Shawshank Redemption, I've learned uh, over the past couple of months, we've done a lot of one of those like what's one of, a lot of silly topics right on the radio station. And one of the topics we do a lot, or have done in the past, at the very least in different iterations, was what's a movie that comes out on a TV. When it comes on TV, you cannot stop. You can't stop watching. You watch it to the end, no matter where it is in the movie, and Shawshank was, I think, by far the most popular film, so I'm interested to see if it can can get past uh, Saving Private Ryan or if the the war epic will ultimately prevail as the number one seed in that conference, so that's what's awaiting us in the 1990-2009 region. And uh, 2010 to present, I think, is a, a, a region where a lot of people have seen pretty much all of these movies because a lot of these are Best Picture winners, Best Picture nominees. They've been in awards conversations, and, and I think a lot of people will be familiar with a lot of the movies in this bracket. So, Moonlight and the Social Network, and with a very narrow win, 57% of the vote, the Social Network as the two seed is moving on. So, that's uh, one kind of one half of the matchups, and, that, and so those, the Social Network will take on the winner of uh, the number one seeded Parasite, versus the uh, 13 seed, Moneyball, which I think is probably the uh, biggest of all the remaining movies. I think Moneyball is the lowest by far remaining seed, right? I'm just giving it a look-see uh, over the other regions. And Apocalypse Now had been, the prior, prior to this, the lowest remaining seed at number 6. And uh, 13, Moneyball. So Moneyball had to take out The Wolf of Wall Street, and uh, Boyhood to get to the Sweet 16. So we'll see if it actually manages to move on over Parasite. I feel like Recency Bias might probably make Parasite win. I mean, I I do think Parasite is a better movie than Moneyball ultimately, but they're just so different that it's really hard to tell how people will vote. Then again, I I definitely thought that Goodfellas, because people just love that movie, would beat Schindler's List. And I mean, I also thought Casablanca would be gone with the wind. So what do I know, right? So there you go. Those are the... uh, That's where we stand right now for the uh, Best Drama Ever bracket. Hashtag Best drama ever. So uh, yeah, go to uh, Twitter at Show S H O Time Movies, and you can uh, make your voice heard there. A lot of fun conversations with people about uh, how they feel about the how the voting has gone so far, and uh, we'll get the next two polls up uh, in a couple of days, and then we'll move on to the elite. It shouldn't take too long to get to our crown a champion. Until then, so if you're interested in uh, putting out a, a mid bracket. Uh, prediction then i I all by all means welcome, and I still think God 2 is gonna win, cause how could it not, but at the same time, hey, crazier things have happened, am I right? It's been a fun project, I think, all things considered to to work on as as with most things, I feel like during the pandemic i have uh that that's not work related I should say I've slacked on it a little bit, I mean, I mean, you guys know I've slacked on this podcast, so I mean shame on me, right, but i uh it's been a fun thing I've been watching a lot of these movies. Not every single one of them, but I've been watching most of them here and there as we uh, go through the quarantine, go through the pandemic. We're all staying at home still, or most of us at least. I know I am. My job has not required me to go back into work. I am still getting outside for walks and, and meeting my parents in Scarborough and meeting up with my girlfriend who's in Richmond Hill and so on. But at the same time, you know, it's still a lot of it is still the same old, same old staying inside. And uh, it's funny because... I think, I don't know how long we've all been inside for, right? Like, we're, this is the end of June, and this started kind of mid-March, so I guess we're about, like, maybe about a hundred days, thereabouts. I'm sure that someone has had a counter going. For me, it hasn't been so bad, because I'm I'm a bit of an introvert, and I'm a bit of a homebody anyway, so I'm completely fine with that, but. I've been passing the time, as I'm sure uh, you guys are, because if you're listening to this podcast, you definitely like movies. And if you're listening to this, then you probably have been watching as many movies as I have been. So again, about 100 days, and I have watched well over 50 movies, probably like about 55, 56 movies. I have to actually count them. I watched The Patriot earlier today, uh, (laughs) which is kind of funny because I had not seen that movie in forever. It popped up on Netflix. Um, But I've been watching a lot of these movies via streaming services and and a lot of on-demand movies as well, right? which is kind of interesting to see how that's been working throughout the entire pandemic as well. But it's funny because if, if I've watched, let's say, let's just round it down actually and round it down to 50. And we've been in quarantine for 100 days. That means basically every other day I've watched a movie, which for me sounds about right, right? I go to bed on average, 3, 4, 5 a.m. Probably I'm a real night owl. And I wake up quite late as well because I work pretty late most nights. I work a lot of nights. I work a lot of late evenings. Um, and then, you know, your, your dinner and your whole, your whole lifestyle gets kind of upended because you're doing stuff uh, late at night and not waking up until late the next day, right? So if I wake up sometimes at ten, eleven 11 a.m., I'll just watch movies until whatever it is I have to do later in the evening, right? So which is kind of fun. But there you go. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying watching movies as much as I have. And uh, it's on that note I wanted to get to our reviews because if you clicked on this episode and you're listening to this right now, you'll know that the episode is titled The Five Bloods. Uh, Artemis Fowl, King of Staten Island, and Underwater, and it's those movies in that order I want to get to during this episode. So let's start, actually, with with the, I think, probably the best movie. Actually, you know what? I take it back. It's not I think. It is unequivocally the best movie I have seen during the quarantine. It is definitely the best movie we're going to talk about on this podcast. So why don't we start high with the best movie, Spike Lee has made, I was going to say in a long time, but definitely at the very least since uh, Black Klansman a couple of years ago, uh, Defy Bloods. That's Marvin Gaye to start the review of Defy Bloods, Spike Lee's latest movie, Defy Bloods. And I uh, didn't pick that by accident. You guys know, uh, whenever I pick a a, a song to introduce a segment in any way, shape, or form, it is related in some way to the movie, whether it's a background music or part of the soundtrack, which is what I usually prefer, part of the soundtrack, um, or something that's perhaps evoked or mentioned by one of the characters. But in this case, it's interesting because while they do actually talk about in the movie, the characters talk about in the movie how much they like Marvin Gaye, at the end of the film it wasn 't until I actually realized maybe because his music is so famous, and I personally do really like soul and r and b and whatnot so it wasn 't so it didn 't stand out so much to me because it just felt so natural, but at the same time at the end of the movie, it says in the credits, soundtrack provided by Marvin Gaye before it gets into any of the orchestral scoring, which I find really fascinating. Spike Lee must obviously really like Marvin Gaye, and of course it was natural to that time period that the Vietnam uh, the Vietnam War took place, and I want to say Marvin Gaye in real life passed away in the 80s, um, but at the same time, yeah, it's just, it's, it's definitely a big part of these characters in the movies, their lives, but it makes sense outside of the movie because of the time period it was filmed in, right? So, that's a really, a really fun way to start all this stuff. Marvin Gaye, the legend, um, and uh, I, I think Five Bloods, also made by a legend in Spike Lee, is as I mentioned before. The music, you know, it's one of my favorite movies that he has made in some time. Do I think it's his best movie? Let's get that out of the way first. I don't know if I'll go that far to say. It's his best movie. I think I liked it more than Black Klansmen. And like Black Klansmen, when that movie ended, if you guys recall, it uh, weaved in some footage from real-life events, right? Like the Charlottesville protests with um, white supremacists, and, and you have the footage of the woman who um, very tragically passed away when someone drove their car into a rally of people, and it was very well publicized. And Trump saying they're good people on both sides of the rally, like that whole event. That that event is in Black Klansmen because I think Spike Lee is obviously trying to draw a a parallel between what happened during the events of Black Klansmen and the modern day events of, of today. Right. So I I mention all of that stuff because. Spike Lee, usually that does that kind of thing at the ends of his movies. And in this case, in *The 5 Bloods, he does it at the very beginning. I don't think it's a huge spoiler because this movie is about, at its core, I'll describe the plot in, in a sec here, but at its core, *The 5 Bloods is about these four men who, as soldiers, have to deal with the idea of what the cost of war actually is. Right? And a lot of movies have done that, don't get me wrong, but I think this is interesting because it specifically deals with the idea of, of, of how, how, how race is evolved, involved in that and how that disproportionately affects people of color and in this particular case, black people. Right? And I think that's the message amongst many, certainly, that Spike Lee is trying to, to get across here amongst the feelings he's trying to evoke here. And in in, to, in, in, in in towards evoking those feelings, let's say, he uh, he uses footage of Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and a lot a lot of other people as well. And I and I don't want to just say a lot of other people because they're not important. But just because Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Dr. King are are probably the three most prominent people when it comes to the civil rights movements and speaking out and being being vocal about it that are, are often used in media, right, and are taught in schools and so on, right? Like for me, for example, my family is Muslim, and um, even though they're not black, I mean, I was taught by my parents, and, and in addition to school as well, but by my parents about Muhammad Ali and about Malcolm X and so on, right? So I think for a lot of people it's very similar in that those are the three most prominent figures you probably know and, and make it easier for you to understand and in your mind right have the context framed appropriately for you to watch the events the 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 fictional events of course of the five bloods when it comes to the present day and so to, the plot i mentioned i tell you about the plot so it's interesting because the plot uh takes place both during the vietnamese war and um both during the Vietnam War and during present day. Okay, so the plot is basically, as as the name might imply, the Five Bloods. So the Five Bloods unit in the movie was a unit of five black American soldiers who fought in the Vietnam War um, for the United States. And their characters are Paul, Otis, Eddie, and Melvin, as well as Chadwick Boseman's character, Norman. Now... Chadwick Bozeman, I mention him specifically because Norman is the only member of the Bloods, the unit, to not make it out of Vietnam. He dies in Vietnam. The rest of them, played by Delroy Lindo, Paul, uh, Clark Peters, Otis, Norm Lewis, Eddie, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Melvin, right? So the other four, those guys, Paul, Otis, Eddie, and Melvin, make it out of Vietnam. They go back to the world where they find, kind of like I mentioned, they find... A world that is uncaring about veterans, that has discarded them because they did their job, and but there is no place for, for men who only know violence in the world, and even less place for black men who only know violence, right? And that's, that's, I think, as I mentioned, the really interesting message from Spike Lee in the sense that veterans of wars are often left with nothing when they come home, and, and, and like I said, even more so when they're people of color in America, even more when they're black, right? And they also touch on this in the movie, which I find really interesting, how black soldiers during the war were often sent into more dangerous situations because they, because of the color of their skin, were seen as more disposable and how that idea in real life and in the movies, certainly, but as re- movies are reflections of real life, right? And that idea thus is reflected in America as an entity, right? As a whole. Less so in Canada, I think, but Canada has its own issues with race and racism, I think. Um, but that's a different topic because that's not it's that's not relevant to this movie. But I, I find that a really interesting idea because it, not just because it's relevant to what's happening in the world today, but because that's something that you it's an idea that you see reflected in a lot of movies about war. But very rarely does the idea of race get intertwined with it in that way, right? So I think kudos to Spike Lee for bringing that idea up in, in a really in a really poignant way. I feel uh, another interesting idea is also that these men. Ostensibly went to Vietnam as liberators, right? But now they return as oppressors because the other the other kind of part of this is that Norman, when he died, they they buried him with gold. And it, I believe from what the what I recall with the movie, it was gold being given to indigenous Vietnamese people to help with the with the conflict and the war that had ravaged their country. So it was kind of like war reparations, I, I think, by the by the uh, by the U.S. government and. The conflict happens, the, the U.S. wins, that particular conflict and the these four men, these four surviving men, decide to bury Stormin Norman, again, Chadwick Boseman's character, to bury his his body with the gold, with the promise that they'll come back for it when the war is over. And they never, I don't think, actually explicitly say that it's 2020 that they go back in, but I mean, considering they have cell phones and they have, they have modern day technology, I think it's implied it's like at the very least modern-ish day, like the 2010s, if not if not 2020. Uh, so yes, they return kind of as oppressors, it feels like, and instead of liberators, because they're going for basically stolen gold. Uh, and I, I think this is a great film because it also presents the idea that for some people, the war is never really over, right? It's not just for the Americans either. They show the idea of, of Vietnamese veterans also struggling with what their country is and has become in their eyes since the war, what they gave up, what they had lost during the war. It's a very powerful idea, the one that wars never end, right? Because the repercussions, they basically echo and ripple outward, even though those ripples become less intense the further out they get with time. They're still felt by people on the fringes, and those ripples ostensibly continue forever and forever and forever and forever until, you know, only the faintest echoes of them can be felt, but they're still being felt, right? So I find that really interesting as well. All of those are, are really great things that uh, Spike Lee managed to bring up. The acting, I think, in this movie is uh, exceptional. It is so exceptional. It's, 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 not, it's not just fun because there is a decent amount of comedy in all the performances as well, in a lot of the dialogue, because I think it's hard not to laugh at some of the absurdity at all of it, and I feel like Spike Lee did that on purpose. But at the same time, the main guys who play the four soldiers, and uh, in particular... Delroy Lindo. They've all they're all great, but Lindo was just absolutely phenomenal as Paul. Like in a regular year, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is the kind of performance that would make him a lock for an Oscar nomination, but I mean, who knows, right? The Oscars were moved uh, to February, to, not to February, they were moved to April, and um, the last time they were in April was like, I don't really know, 100 years ago, it feels like, who knows, it's a long time since it's been in April, so who knows if the momentum for the Five Bloods keeps up, and, and this is also a really wacky year in general, so it, I feel like it probably could. At the same time, Delroy Linda was great, he was magnetic, he was probably given the most to work with, he was the, he's kind of the only member of the of the group that is a kind of They all feel disenfranchised, but he is the most so, right? Like He is terrific as the the paranoid, Trump-supporting, like I said, disenfranchised Vietnam War vet. He just is absolutely terrific. Lots of great monologues, really emotional scenes. His son is brought along as well, the character's son, Jonathan Majors, who you might remember from The Last Black Man in San Francisco, He comes along as Paul's son, David. And David's also great, too. His scenes aren't quite as flashy, but they really do evoke the memory of someone who never had a father, despite having that father still be alive and in his life somewhat. So Jonathan Majors' character, Paul, views this as his last real chance to support and help his father um, before, before something happens, before his father becomes totally cut off from him or something like that. And there... Their interplay, I think, is easily the highlight of the movie. It's uh, it's really fun to watch. I think if you're going to watch any movie and, and watch any two two actors play off one another, it's really Delroy Lindo and Jonathan Majors. Clark Peters, I feel like you you have to give him praise, too. He does this really great thing where he plays Otis, the kind of reasonable one, quote-unquote. And uh, Otis does this great thing where he goes to meet kind of an old flame of his who he, who he knew and slept with during the uh, Vietnamese war and he meets this woman's child who is clearly half Vietnamese, half black. And, uh, he kind of, he basically, he basically to you, the viewer gets the idea through that. He is slowly realizing that this woman, when she comes into the room is his daughter solely through the motion of his hands. Like his, his facial expression is exactly the same. And all that is moving are his eyeballs from her to the woman back to the daughter, and his hands, and the hands, it's not really sign language, but the hand language is terrific, it's absolutely brilliant, and um, he's really great as well. I feel like Clark Peters has been good in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in his entire career, although I gotta say, when I think of him, I immediately remember him from The Wire as uh, Detective Lester Freeman, which I think is great, Uh, one of my favorite favorite of his roles. Uh, I feel like I should also mention Isaiah Whitlock Jr., not just because he plays one of the soldiers, Melvin, but because, uh, of course, I, I mentioned The Wire, and he plays a character in The Wire. Uh, I think it was a, a congressman or oh, some kind of politician from the city of Baltimore. I haven't watched The Wire in a couple of years. But there's a great – his kind of catchphrase is he goes, "shit" or something like that, right? And he does it in the five bloods. Uh, I couldn't believe Spike Lee actually let him do it, but he got a hearty chuckle out of me, which was absolutely fantastic. But anyways – I feel like uh, there, there are also some great references in this. I, I know Spike Lee said he wanted to reference some of the movies from the Vietnamese War that were made about the Vietnam War, I should say, uh, in real life, right? So Apocalypse Now, for example. And uh, I remember when he mentioned that Apocalypse Now was going to be referenced in this movie. I was afraid that it would be really overt, right? Because you can make a lot of overt references to Apocalypse Now. And I mean, the very first time you see it referenced is a giant sign that in the background says Apocalypse Now. So that was pretty funny, but... They're, they also had ride of the Valkyries. I mean, that's no less subtle because it's so famous. But it was it was a funny kind of juxtaposition of that song because in the movie it's just four old men quietly riding down a river instead of jets and helicopters flying over the Vietnam jungle with napalm exploding everywhere, right? So that's pretty cool. And uh, the quote: "There's a there's a member of the um, kind of the antagonist that they fight." who says, uh, we don't need no stinking badges. And that's a line lifted right from The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which I really only wanted to bring up because it's a movie that was in the first round of our Best Drama Ever bracket, right? So that's kind of cool, though. That that line is pretty famous for a lot of reasons. Um, it was cool to see uh, Spike Lee, who I think has spoken at length about his love for that movie before. Um, he wanted to include it. And there, there are a lot of other references as well, but those are the ones I think that stick out uh, the most immediately, at the very least. But uh, The Five Bloods, I think, like I mentioned before, easily the best movie I had seen During the during that, I have not already seen, I should say. I watch a lot of other really, really great movies, but those are all movies that are all rewatches, right? So, for a fresh first time watch, The Five Bloods is absolutely fantastic. It's a Netflix movie as well, Netflix original that Spike Lee made for the streaming service. So, I'm interested to see how that is perceived considering how good it is. But uh, it is absolutely fantastic and it is 100% worth your time. I feel like I went pretty long on The Five Bloods because, frankly, I loved it so much. I don't think I'll be that long <laughs> for the next three movies on this list. I laugh only to stop from crying. That is perhaps the best way I could I could ever in my life introduce this next movie. So let's just uh, let's ooh, let's just get it over with, okay? Let's just get this next review over with. Artemis Fowl. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh. Feel it coming, build an anticipation. I'm charged up, they say I'm ready for greatness. Big different, listen, you must be mistaken. Isn't is hyperbolic is for me to say here. that Artemis Vell might be the worst movie mm-hmm. I've ever seen? I know there's probably always going to be some some sort of recency bias when it comes to saying this is the worst movie I've ever seen, right? But I feel like when you, when you factor in the amount of money it took to make this movie, which I admit I don't know, it's probably well over hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So you take that into account. You take into account that it's directed by someone pretty famous, Kenneth Branagh. I'm sure all you guys know who he is. Beloved Shakespearean actor and director in recent years, right? Actor as well in uh, Murder of the Orient Express and other things of that ilk, right? Disney. Disney's behind it. And then it's also a a beloved, uh, best-selling children-slash-young-adult book series, right? So with all those factors going for it, I kind of thought... There was a chance it'd be good. This is also one of those movies that was stuck in, uh, in developmental hell for a very long time. And, you know, after seeing it, God, I wish it, it had just remained stuck in developmental hell. I, 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 I truly wish I could never see this movie, never knew anything about this movie, other than Disney never released it because of production issues and so on. Okay, That is a more merciful end. Then whatever it is is this movie. This is easily, you know. I just said that The Five Bloods was easily the best movie I'd seen for the first time during the pandemic. Artemis Fowl is unequivocally the worst. Okay, it is. It. I, I just. I'm not the kind of person who likes to say this ruined my childhood because, like people who like to crap on, let's say Avatar: The Last Airbender, which, which again, to be fair, is it is a god awful, truly awful movie. But again, lots of money behind it big-time director, M. Jamalan and and so on, right, behind it as well, and it's just, it just all these different things it had going for it, and it was terrible, right? And Artemis Fowl was very much the same way, and again, like I said, I don't like to say that kind of stuff because those books that it's based on still exist and always will exist, and if I ever really wanted to read them again, I could, I could really easily because I have all of the books at my parents' house in Scarborough, but it's just, I don't really understand the impetus for changing as much as they did, right? Like, Like for example, there's an interview where Kenneth Branagh gave a reason, for example, and this is the key the key sin here, in that they decided to do away with Artemis Fowl being the villain of the books. Okay? Which to me, no matter what else you screw up, you can't have screwed that up because that's the whole that's the hook, right? That is the reason the readers you know, buy your copies and flip the pages because they want to see this kid who is also a criminal mastermind. Right? Anyway, so here, here's a, an excerpt I'll read to you from that interview with Kenneth Brana on why he, he decided to make Artemis not be the villain. Okay? He says it was a decision based on a sort of inverse take on what I saw in the books, which was uh, Ian, Ian Culver, the author of the Artemis Val series, as a side note from me, uh, introducing Artemis, gathering a sense of morality across the series. He said that he had Artemis pre-formed as an 11-year-old Bond villain. It seemed to me that for the audiences who are not familiar with the books, this would be a hard, hard kind of thing to accept. End quote. I uh, don't really understand, first of all. Okay, if you don't want to do that, if you don't feel like audiences can't understand that, then adapt something else. Well, that, is, that is the key part of everything, right? Like, Artemis Fowl as a series sold 21 million copies worldwide. And they are sold to children. It's not like adults are reading these books, right? I read these books when I was in grade school. I think when I was in grade seven or something like that. Children are reading these books. I'm pretty sure that proves that if you're making a kids' movie, that kids can idea, accept the idea of a child Bond villain. I don't know. It just why it, why have such disdain for your audience when your audience are children? Just make that movie. And don't screw up the entire premise. That's all I could... That's all I want to say on that. It's just absolutely insane that they decided that was the impetus for changing everything. There are other changes they made, too. Don't get me wrong, right? Like Holly, for example, not the first female elf, which is key to her character. Mulch Diggums, the dwarf, is human-sized for, I think, no other reason than they probably didn't want to shrink Josh Gad down to look like a dwarf, even though, weirdly enough, they did that... For basically every other character in the movie, without making them look weird, so they could have still had Josh's Josh Gad's celebrity face show. And even though they didn't do it, it was covered in a beard. I don't know. Is it's weird? You know, Colin Farrell is in this as Artemis Fowl Senior. Even though Artemis Fowl Senior is not in the first book, and when he is in the book via flashbacks and 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 kind of descriptions from Artemis Junior. He's described as a as a ruthless, mean father. And here he's a central character who has a secret heart of gold. They took out the troll scene. They reveal Butler's first name, even though that, that's supposed to be like a secret for a good reason. They make Butler's younger sister just his niece for some reason, I guess. I don't really understand the impetus there. You know, Root, the commander Root, who is the elf commander. He's a, He is a she, which again, you know what? That could be fine. There's no real issue with that even though that does kind of undermine the whole Holly is the first female elf thing. But whatever, that's fine, played by Judy Dench. I, I there's no real issue with that, but it's just all the dialogue from these people are just so bad, right? Like Judy Dench, there's a part where she steps off of like this I don't know, futurity transport thing and she just she just steps off. Nobody is standing there. the The ramp comes down. The camera just whoosh, zooms in on her face, and she just goes, "Top of the morning to ya." And and it's like, who is she talking to? <laughs> who is she delivering that line to? I don't know. It just it, it is a strange, right? Like be, between Artemis Fowl and Cats, Judy Dench has had quite the last what six months or so. But boy, it is a it is a rancid movie. It is rancid. Also, I I like to also point out that this might be the the first movie that I've seen where I think it it feels like maybe 85 to 90% of the dialogue is all delivered where someone not looking at the screen, right? Like, for example, Artemis and Holly are having a conversation uh, at some point in the movie, and they had multiple ones, right? And by the way, the actress who plays Holly, she was probably the best part of the movie. She actually looked like she was trying. Everyone else just looked like they were kind of slubbing along. But anyways, Artemis and Holly are are uh, having a, a conversation, and whenever the camera's on Holly's face showing you Holly's reaction to whatever Artemis is speaking, you'll hear Artemis' lines. Then it'll cut to Artemis's face while you hear Holly's lines. So you never actually see, or very little of the time do you actually see, for example, Artemis Fowl, the actor playing him, and his mouth moving, his lips flapping open and closed with words coming out of them. Right? It is all delivered while characters are moving or their faces are sideways to the camera or their backs are to the camera and uh, they're in the process of cutting away from this character to another character. They do it so much. It makes me feel like 90% of this dialogue was recorded after the fact because something was screwed up. That's what it looks like at the very least. I, maybe I'm just being picky, but it, it it happens so much that it's impossible not to notice. Okay, It is a really odd really odd choice. I don't understand how someone as accomplished as Kenneth Branagh could make a movie like this. It really feels like he just cashed in for the paycheck. Everything about it was screwed up. Ugh. It's a bad movie, okay? It's a bad movie. You can only really watch it via Disney+, Plus, and if you have Disney+, Plus, you know what? I hope, I hope you're watching something else. You'll be better off just watching an old Disney movie or waiting until Hamilton comes out in a week or so anyways. Do literally anything with your time other than watch Artemis Fowl. Please, I beg you, please, for the love of God. I'd say usually at this point, the next movie we'll review is uh, a sort of palate cleanser. But unfortunately for you, dear listener, (laughs) the next two movies on this episode are not so much palate cleansers. I will say that Artemis Fowl is by far the worst movie we'll talk about tonight, so maybe my, my... my discussions of the next two films will not be so negative. But at the same time, The King of Staten Island, the latest from Judd Apatow. If you guys recall, this movie actually was supposed to kick off the uh, South by Southwest festival down in Texas. But of course, that was um, like everything else in the world, completely, completely torpedoed because of the coronavirus. But still, because of its lofty place as a festival starter which I think in some way, shape, or form usually bodes well. No, maybe not always, but can at the very least bode well for a movie's prospects as you go forward, especially when it has something to do with Judd Apatow, who has made some pretty good movies over the course of his career. You were hopeful, right? Unfortunately, instead, we got The King of Staten Island. So let's get right into it right here. I should probably get. When it comes to the King of Staten Island, I should get all the positives out of the way first, okay? And I think, at the very least, I think that it it deals with the idea of tragedy and how different people cope with tragedy differently—tragedy, loss, death, etc. I think it captures that idea pretty poignantly, okay? Now. This movie, if you if you're not aware, this I think was supposed to be Pete Davidson, who of course is a star on SNL, Saturday Night Live, as is, as a sketch com- sketch comic, sketch comedian. I don't really know what they're called, but uh, you know he's on he's on SNL. Okay, that's probably enough for you guys to so know, nope. and for me, frankly, uh, and I feel like this was supposed to be his big vehicle into Hollywood stardom, and for someone of Pete Davidson's, I guess genre you know, subcategory, whatever, right? I, I feel like there probably wasn't someone better than Judd Apatow, who of course is known for, um, as I saw someone put it on social media, and I thought this was a great way to describe it, you know, Judd Apatow was known for taking these guys with hearts of bronze and, and showing you their real character. They are pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they'll make something of themselves after spending most of the movie hilariously, out of touch and out of their depth and uh, fish out of water and all these things. They smoke a lot of weed and they're kind of uh, mess-ups and screw-ups and they're jerk-offs and this and that, and then they pull themselves up and they they win at the end, quote-unquote. They win and everything is good or at the very least much improved, right? And so that's basically the plot of the King of Staten Island, right? You substitute the uh, regular locales of a Judd Apatow movie and you insert Staten Island, a borough of New York City. Um, The entire movie takes place on Staten Island. Pete Davidson is apparently from Staten Island. And uh, like I said, the tragedy that they have to overcome is simply that when Pete was younger, his father, a firefighter, dies and his mother, Marisa Tomei, is left to raise him and his young sister, who I believe is played by Maud Apatow, Judd Apatow's young daughter. So there's some healthy nepotism for you. <laughs> all, all jokes aside, she was actually pretty good. I, I don't want to rag on her too much because she was one of the better parts of the movie. But yes, it's about Pete Davidson's lazy stoner butt, staying at home, mooching off his mom, not getting a job, just being a general idiot, doing dumb things with his, ki- with his, his dumb friends, like, for example, one of the things, and this is kind of one of the impetus impeti, impetuses <laughs> of the entire movie, is that uh, he wants to be a tattoo artist. He wants to, He's a, he feels like he's talented at drawing, that he could commit to being a tattoo artist. But that's Pete's problem, Scott's problem, I should feel like, I should say, in the movie, his character's name is Scott. Scott's problem is that he cannot commit to anything. And uh, he and his friends are screwing around, uh, as they all do, because none of them have jobs, uh, on Staten Island during the day. And a kid, a 10-year-old kid or an 8-year-old kid or something like that, comes up and demands a tattoo. And the irresponsible Scott gives the kid, or at least begins to give him a tattoo. And the boy's irate father, played by Bill Burr, who is also fantastic, uh, comes through and, you know, kind of berates Scott's mom at her residence on Staten Island and... Things go from there. They enter into a relationship. It changes her life. It changes his life. It changes Scott's life. And the, the ball gets rolling from there. Is what I'm saying. Okay. And I think I think this movie's major problem is that when you look back at John Apatow's other movies, okay, let's look back at the Forty Year Old Virgin, and Steve Carell was the guy there. And I forget where the where the forty year old virgin fell in terms of Steve Carell's popularity uh, as it relates to The Office, but safe to say it was it was it was involved there in there somewhere, okay? And Steve Carell, a talented actor, is naturally innocently charismatic in that in that specific role. And we know Steve Carell is an amazing actor just from other things we've seen since then, including The Office, but also things he's been in after that sitcom ended, right? Or at the very least after his role in the sitcom ended. And then you look ahead again to Knocked Up, in which uh, Judd Apatow did the same thing, but for Seth Rogen, and now he's everybody's favorite, lovable stoner. Maybe I'm also a little biased because Seth Rogen is Canadian, but at the same time, you guys get what I mean, right? Seth Rogen is that's just a kind of shtick now. Even though he does his shtick with other people like James Franco and Craig Robinson and so on, it, it's still it's still a Jay Baruchel and the Canadian had to sneak that in there. But uh, you know, it, it's still a part of. What is made Jet Apatow so famous? Because both of those movies are about these idiots who kind of pull themselves up and make something of themselves in some way, shape, or form as it relates to their story, okay? But inherently, inherently, Steve Carell and uh, and Seth Rogen are really likable. Unfortunately, Pete Davidson (laughs) just isn't that likable. He's not, I don't think, I don't hate him, right? But I feel like, whereas... I knew nothing about Seth Rogen or Steve Carell, or at the very least very little about them before going into the King or pardon me before going into either of their respective movies. But going into the King of Staten Island, I, did, I knew a little bit about Pete Davidson from SNL and seeing some of his stand up, but the truth is, I don't find Pete Davidson all that funny, and I know comedy and humor is subjective, but he just he is the asshole character that doesn't have any of the likable qualities. He just seems like a dick, whereas the asshole character that Seth Rogen plays and the weirdo kind of asshole character that Steve Carell plays have something that you like about them and find inherently funny. Like, like I say again, Pete Davidson is just kind of mean. He's mean to people in this movie. He's mean to his mom. He's mean to his sisters. He's mean to his friends. He's a loser in in the bad way. Okay, he's not the lovable loser. He's kind of the unlovable loser. Okay, I I feel like that is the crux of this movie's problem. And also, the other part of it is that Marisa Tomei and Bill Burr. <laughs> the movie should have just been about them. Like Scott would have been a perfect character as the side character in a movie about a middle-aged woman who is struggling to find love and romance after her husband died, and she's stuck in a rut of her own, an emergency room nurse, and, you know, she can't really do anything because her her, her close-to-adult son, or adult-in-age son, but not-in-mind son, uh, won't move out while her successful younger daughter is off to university, and then she meets a man, Bill Burr, who, play, who is a firefighter, much like her late husband, and... It goes from there. Like, that is a much more interesting movie than dealing with Scott. Scott is just, like I said, an asshole, and I'm not particularly interested in what Scott was doing the entire movie, even though every scene is about Scott's character. It is just, it is boring and uninteresting. Late in the movie, there's uh, a part where you learn a little more about Scott's talents, right? Because, I mean, ostensibly, if he wanted to become a tattoo artist, he had to have some real artistic ability, even though all the tattoos he gave to both himself and his friends show that he has pretty much no artistic ability. And I think, to be fair, that is at least about the fact that he's not willing to commit to learning how to get better. He can't just skate by on being naturally good. And you do see him commit to a painting... For what um, of Ray and Ray is bill Burr 's character who gets involved with uh, with scott 's mother, and um, as punishment for the tattoos, Ray basically arranges for Scott to walk his kids to and from school after he gets involved with scott 's mom, and you see he wrote he drew something for the kids, he drew some superhero like character like Iceman or something, and it was very 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 good, so Ray later on out of a i guess after they become closer. I think, I, th- I think it was something like Scott's mom kicks them out of the house, both of them. She ends her kind of relationship with Ray and kicks her son out of the house so he has to make something of herself, himself. And uh, he eventually, after skating around places with no luck, ends up at the firehouse where Ray is also holed up and they become closer through him doing odd jobs around the firehouse. Anyway, so Ray later lets Scott practice his tattoos on his back and they make it seem... Like what you're gonna see on his back is some amazing work of art, or at the very least something that's very well done, right? Because they go out of their way to show you that Scott's tattoos, or Scott's artwork I should say, is good. Is good when he applies himself. And here he's applying himself a lot and then they show you the big reveal at the end and it is stupid. Like I get that maybe it's done for a cheap laugh and 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 I get also that the the main tattoo that makes the mom take take both of them back is a tattoo that shows her Scott their younger sister and Ray together as a family of four so that's that's kind of she realized that they are friends and they've reconciled and blah 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 but at the same time it's just I don't really understand what the point of, of the of the tattoo I don't know I just maybe I'm nitpicking maybe here it's the, it's the show that Scott, still has some growing up to do before he really goes anywhere further. But at the same time, it's just like, come on, what are we doing here? I had to watch this movie for almost two hours and nothing really happened. Like, there weren't, there wasn't really any satisfying payoff that there was in Knocked Up and the 40-Year-Old Virgin. And frankly, even you know, even the others of, of John Apatow's lesser movies like Funny People with Adam Sandler, right? Like, I mean, even that movie had a little bit of a payoff. I don't know. It just, there were aspects of the whole thing that just really rubbed me the wrong way and it felt like it was trying to be more than it was, if that makes sense. I will say there were some funny jokes. Action Bronson was pretty funny in a very, uh, very, very small cameo. Uh, Bill Burr, as usual, uh, great. Marie Tomei was great. Bill Burr actually has uh, a fantastic line where, uh, he, where Scott confronts him about his gambling, and he makes a joke about the Jets. And he says the Jets are going to come back, and they have three first-round picks. And he starts to get down the the rabbit hole of yelling about the Jets. And I mean, you guys know I love the sports jokes. That really, uh, that really tickled my funny bone. Let's <laughs> let's say it was good. But I mean, I don't know. A throwaway five-second joke is not enough to redeem this entire movie, unfortunately. So I, I think it's probably for the best it came out now because I feel like this movie would have absolutely bombed had it gone to the theaters. But at the same time, who knows? We are, we live in 2020, where anything can happen. So, I guess uh, I guess we'll have to see. But ultimately, even though it does have some glimmers of light, I feel like the King of Staten Island is something you can ultimately uh, ultimately put on your list to watch when you're going through Judd Apatow's career retrospective. Let's say uh, five years down the line. Okay, so the last movie on our podcast episode today is Underwater. Now. It's directed by William Eubank, uh, starring Kristen Stewart, and she's really the only, you know, quote-unquote, real star in this film. And, I mean, you go into a movie like this, this movie originally came out in January. I only got around to watching it now. But, I mean, when a movie, a sci-fi horror movie about scientists in an underwater station at the bottom of the ocean comes out in January, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. So, I don't want to be, I, I feel like I can't be too harsh on this film. But at the same time, considering the interesting ideas it brought up, I find it difficult not to be. But anyways, let's get into that with a little more detail uh, right now with the review for Underwater. The first thing to notice when you watch Underwater is how short it is. Okay? This is by far the shortest movie at 95 minutes, including the credits, ...of this entire podcast episode that we're talking about. That includes Artemis Fowl, which is a movie made for children. So, you know, those movies are 90 minutes by design. And, of course, this movie is 90 minutes by design, quote-unquote, as well. But it's a movie made ostensibly for adults, you would think... I don't know. I find that really interesting, and again, that means that's with credits, which means you're really only watching like 90 minutes of actual movie, right? Which I, it's just I, what, what's up with that, right? This movie came out in January. You think they'd want to pat it out a little bit more? And I think that's my main criticism of this movie is that it could have been padded out more, and you would have had a really interesting concept because Underwater, which I mentioned in the preamble, is about a group of scientists. Mining for something? Who knows? They ever mention it? I don't think so. But just drilling, mining for something at the bottom of the Marianas Um, Trench—not the musical group, but uh, the actual (laughs) place—and they're like seven miles underwater. Okay, they are just way down there underwater, and something happens. Right? Is it an earthquake? We don't know. Is it? Are there mystical creatures? We don't know. And. They kind of get into the action right away, which I do genuinely find really interesting. They don't let you get to know any of the characters. Kristen Stewart is in her underwear brushing her teeth at the bathroom sink, contemplating life. And then, bam! The wall implodes. Water gushing in everywhere. She's frantically sprinting down. She cuts off the people. She closes the door to save the lives of everyone, but sacrifices others. The station almost implodes. They have to get out. All this stuff happens. And that happens in the first, like, two minutes of the movie, okay? Okay. So they do not waste any time getting you right to the core of the action when it comes to underwater. And uh, I think, I mean, there's a good fifteen minutes they cut out right there as they as they could have had you, you know, meet all the other characters in uh, kind of pithy, strange little ways, which I, I guess, is refreshing to a degree. But at the same time, I find a kind of thought to myself, and eh, they could have they could have done with a little more. Either way, it's just a it's a strange film because it's. It's very slickly edited, the special effects are really nice, the suits they wear when they finally go out onto the ocean floor really are, remind me of something that you'd see in like an adaptation of a, of a cool sci-fi video game like Mass Effect or Star Wars or something like that. Very aesthetically pleasing to the eye, you know. And the horror, there's some pretty good jump scares even though you kind of expect them And I think you eventually learn that they, they woken up some kind of creature or a a lot of little creatures. And then you learn there's a big mama version of the creature and we'll get to that in a sec, but it's just, yeah, like I said, really strange. Um, The other actor of note, or perhaps I guess the other handful of actors of note, Vincent Castle, who you might remember from oceans 12. And I think more recently Westworld, he was not so bad as the stoic captain. TJ Miller is surprisingly in this. Now, I mentioned before that I like this movie, or at least was interested by this movie because of the the behind-the-scenes stuff that went on. And really, it's that this movie was filmed in 2017 and only was released now in January of 2020 because this is one of those movies that Fox made, and then because it got caught in developmental hell... All the stuff with TJ Miller's career with Me Too, and then call remember, he called him that bomb threat. I forget if it was a bus station or a train station or an airport or something like that, but he did that. And uh, I mean, since then, his, his career, which once included voice acting for Disney, HBO Silicon Valley, Deadpool, etc., and his career is pretty much over, right? So. He is still in this movie, and it really felt like they probably really seriously weighed whether or not they could edit him out of this. But he is in too much of the movie to edit out without it not making sense. So he is still in this, and it's just kind of weird to see a movie in 2020 where T.J. Miller is in a prominent role. But uh, So he's in this as well, as, as you might expect, the entirely comic relief character. And then you have Jessica Henwick as uh, the fellow scientist Emily. Kristen Stewart plays an engineer named Nora. And Jessica Henwick plays Emily. Jessica Henwick, of course, from Iron Fist, Marvel's Iron Fist. That was on uh, on Netflix, and she plays one of the main characters there, Colleen, I believe her name was. So an interesting cast of characters, not bad. I mean, I don't really care for T.J. Miller. He's not my cup of tea comedy-wise, but there you go. He's in this movie, and as you might imagine, he dies pretty early on. And I guess there's an interesting concept here where because again, I, and I mentioned I kind of alluded to the, the big mama character of the kind of creepy humanoid looking things. and you learn, I think it's implied, they don't even though they, all, they don't outright state it. you learn that it's Cthulhu. and I might be butchering that name, Cthulhu Cthulhu as uh, an as HP Lovecraft, Cthulhu. So I guess it's that this mining company dug too deep and they discovered Cthulhu or whatever. And through little tidbits you see the the lingering shots inside of someone's locker, you know, little news things that flash by at the beginning and end. It's implied that the company, the drilling company they all work for, the science company or what have you, uh, knew about these creatures and intentionally were going down there to uncover and perhaps harness the power of these monsters down there, okay? It was also implied that Vincent Castle's Captain Lucien, Lucien, I guess he's French, um, he also knew about them, which is why he wasn't surprised when they started getting attacked by a bunch of different monster-looking things. Okay, So with that in mind, there's an interesting premise where perhaps they lean into the idea that the company is actually a front for a cult of uh, H.P. Lovecraftian cosmic arcane eldritch horror type stuff. And they're actually worshippers of Cthulhu, and they, instead of going down there to harness their their god, they're going down there to free him to destroy Earth, right? Or perhaps, as you later learn, Vincent Castle's character, the Captain, you know, he you learn he loses his daughter, and that he doesn't know. Like he, he says something like that. One of the characters asks him about, "Oh, how old's your daughter?" And he says, "Oh, she's 13. And, and he's and the, and Nora Kristen Stewart's character says, "Oh, you've told me about him before her before. Like she wouldn't she be." when we last worked together, so she would be my age by now, right? Because he's a little bit older. And he goes, oh, right, yes, yes, yes. And then you later learn that she had died a long time ago. And so, again, there's an interesting concept there where perhaps he was going to, he worked for the cult knowingly, even though they were going to bring untold destruction upon the earth because he could maybe get his daughter back or something like that. There are lots of interesting concepts here that they just completely, completely get away from And go in favor of just not really talking about Cthulhu, and then it ends with pretty much all the characters dying. Okay, look, I mean, I think two of the characters escape because another character sacrifices themselves, and I don't have an inherent problem with that. But when you forego all those other interesting ideas that I just made up, I mean, there—I'm sure there's a bunch of other really interesting things you could have done here as well. When you forego all that in favor of just jump scares and foggy-looking water. And another thing, it was kind of difficult to hear what they were what they were actually saying, and I don't know if it was my copy of the movie, my TV, the Xbox I was watching it on, or if, I, if I'm i hard of hearing, or if it just the audio fidelity of this movie just was not that great. It was hard to hear their dialogue, especially when these characters are kind of like screaming and also mumbling in other instances as well. So it, it was just kind of a messy movie that could have been a lot more. Now... I think the reason I'm not so harsh on it compared to The King of Staten Island is because this is the kind of movie you go into with zero expectations, if I hadn't made that clear already, right? Like, I'd gone to this movie thinking, ah, January release, stuck in developmental hell for three years, TJ Miller's in it, how good could it possibly be? And I think that's why we talk so much about on this podcast about the idea of expectations and how that plays into how you actually perceive things. And here, because I had, I had zero expectations, whereas for a Judd Apatow movie, I, I do have expectations. And I think that's probably why, if you're wondering, my, my review of this is not so critical versus The King of Saturn Island, where I expected a little bit more. But there you go. Underwater. Utterly forgettable movie. But if you're looking for a funny, kind of silly sci-fi horror with a bunch of jump scares in it, or, or a few jump scares in it, then I guess you could probably do worse than Underwater. Feels good, honestly, to talk about new movies. Again, I know Underwater came out in January, but at the same time, no one saw that movie when it came out, so give me a break, okay? <laughs> but at the same time, King of Sadden Island, Artemis Fowl, and The Five Bloods all came out within the last couple of weeks. So it does genuinely feel nice to talk about real, live movies. And I feel as the summer goes on, we'll hopefully see more of that. Like Tenet, which was supposed to come out, I think, on July 17th, had been moved back to July, I think, 24th. Yeah, that's right. It was July 24th because that was the uh, going to have otherwise been the date for the Tokyo Olympics, and now that's not happening. So it got moved back to July 24th, and I think today, as I'm recording this, earlier in the day, it was announced that Tenet is now getting moved back to August, and it really doesn't feel like Tenet's going to come out in August, right? Like It doesn't feel like they'd risk a major Christopher Nolan movie that you would think in some way, shape, or form would contend for awards, Uh, be released when people probably still aren't going back to the movie theaters, right? Like if sports aren't having fans um, in large capacities and huge gatherings are still being relatively discouraged, even though much of the United States is opening back up. And now we're seeing it's to their detriment with all of the uh, COVID related cases spiking in places all over the United States. So clearly, I think the appetite for people going to see a movie is probably pretty low on the priority list, all things considered. So I think Tenet probably will get moved back again. Mulan will probably get moved back again. I'd be surprised if we see any major, major releases come out in 2020, but I guess, again, we'll have to see. But uh, as they come out on streaming and otherwise, I will endeavor to review them and endeavor to get those thoughts to you guys via the podcast. We'll continue the best drama ever bracket as well. I, I anticipate by the next time we do an episode... Well, at the very least, be in the final four or maybe even the championship matchup. Maybe we can have some guests on to talk about the movies as we get a little closer to the final uh, couple of rounds, like I say, of the best drama ever bracket. And, of course, the Oscars. I mentioned it kind of in passing, but they're moving to April. So we'll see what that effect has on the awards race this year. Uh, we recently got an email from TIFF saying that it's going to be there are going to be very limited screenings available in person And uh, there's also going to be a lot of digital screenings this year as well. So we'll see what that means for media access because I will want to apply for media accreditation for TIFF as I have done for the last couple of years as well. So we'll see what's on the uh, TIFF front as the summer goes on as well. But thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate engaging with you guys on movies and Hollywood news and just anything going on in the wild and wacky Martian landscape, as a co-worker of mine says, that is COVID-19. I hope you all stay safe. Wear a mask. It's proven to have decreased the uh, transmission rate. If you and other people wear a mask, it can help yourself. It can help other people. And uh, the faster we, we get over this, the, the faster we can get back in theaters and watching movies and discussing them, uh, amongst other things. So, again, stay safe. I love you guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. And as always, have a great night. You what's up, girl? got to ask it. I did them all now. How about a casket? They should have rushed. Gotta worry about her, shorty straight. Been chasing her for two days. First 48. Her bad cause, she worth every cent. She looked like the best money. To-